0: good morning church a special good morning to the kids who maybe aren't uh, normally in here for the sermon we're glad to have you and uh, hope the Lord will give you the grace to uh, to sit still and listen and to know that you are especially uh, to know that you are valuable members of of our body here we are thankful that you're with us Um, let's pray Lord we thank you for your word we thank you that it is living and active and lord i pray that each one of us today would experience uh, the life that comes from your word lord that you would do what no man can do through uh, his speech no woman can do through her speech but what only you can do through your word by the power of your spirit lord be gracious to your people help us each one to hear what you have to say to us today to believe it and, uh, and to respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well over the last month, we uh, through our advent, on Sunday mornings, we worked our way through the Book of Ruth. And in the Book of Ruth, we learned that in a very dark period in the history of God's people, God was still very much at work, not just to take care of the, the more immediate needs of uh, a couple of widows, but to make sure that eventually King David would be born, a king after God's own heart, and that through a promise made to David, eventually Jesus the Messiah would be born. And on Christmas Eve in the evening, uh, Tom uh, taught us from Luke chapter one, where we learned that Jesus will indeed redeem Israel. He'll keep God's promise to David. Uh, He would save his people by establishing a kingdom, and in other places we learn what that kingdom will be like. There will be abundance for his people. There will be peace and justice. The people would thrive. And we learned that that kingdom is not just for Israel, it's for Jews and Gentiles. But the question that hasn't been answered yet, we haven't really answered from Ruth or from the the portion of Luke chapter 1 that we looked at on Christmas Eve, was who gets to be part of the kingdom that Jesus will rule? How can we be part of that kingdom? Or can we be part of that kingdom? Is everyone automatically a part of that kingdom? Or only the people who do the best job of obeying God's commands? Um, If we would have continued reading in Luke's gospel, we would begin to get some of uh, an answer to that question or those questions. Um, so, since we're looking at Luke chapter 7, I'm going to try to hit some highlights between chapter 1 and chapter 7, where you see the beginning of that answer comes. Uh, a few verses after the portion we looked at on Christmas Eve, uh, we see that salvation is uh, by the forgiveness of sin. So, somehow, for being forgiven has something to do with receiving, experiencing that salvation. In chapter 3, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and we learned that he was preaching a baptism. Of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so forgiveness is for those who repent, who turn away from sin, who submit to God's authority and to God's commands. Not necessarily perfectly, but sincerely. In chapter 5, we see that Jesus himself forgave the sins of a paralyzed man, and then, in order to prove that he had the authority to forgive that man's sins, He healed the man and told him to stand up, take his mat, and go home. A few verses later, we see that Jesus called a tax collector to be one of his disciples. Now, tax collectors were, um, we don't care for paying taxes now, but back then it was even worse. So, tax collectors were considered some of the worst sinners by Jews in the time of Jesus. They were cooperating with the Roman government that was oppressing them, They typically would overcharge taxes uh, in order to pad their own bank accounts, and so they were particularly despised, and yet Jesus called one of these tax collectors to be his disciple. And so the Pharisees and the scribes began to, to criticize Jesus, asking why he would eat with tax collectors and sinners. The implication of their question being, there is no good reason to eat with a tax collector or a sinner. Um, So, so far in Luke, as we get to chapter 5 or 6, we see that Jesus offers salvation to those who repent because they believe the gospel, the good news that God's going to keep his kingdom promise through Jesus. Uh, We see that Jesus spends time with sinners and tax collectors. We see that this salvation is for people who at least haven't been perfect, people who have some reason to repent, some sins to repent of, and Jesus shows that he himself forgives sins. That gives us the confidence that this is not just a a happy wish that there might be forgiveness, but that Jesus has the authority to give a real invitation to experience sins that he himself forgives, but still some questions remain. Is this forgiveness, this invitation to repent, for all sinners? Or maybe to people who haven't sinned all that bad, who haven't crossed some sort of a line, people who haven't sinned excessively, people who aren't necessarily beyond saving? We also haven't asked an you the question how extensive is this forgiveness? Are those who are included in God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus will reign over, Uh, Do they still owe something? Are they tolerated as members of that kingdom, but perhaps looked down on because they had to enter that kingdom through forgiveness? Does their past sin still affect their experience of life in that kingdom, even if it no longer excludes them from that kingdom? And our passage for today that Sarah read so well uh, will answer these questions for us. And the big idea that we'll see is that Jesus offers great forgiveness to great sinners. And in the first part of the passage, which really kind of sets the scene for what we're going to learn about Jesus' forgiveness, uh, shows us that great sinners and their great Savior can share a shameless love. Listen to verse 36 again. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So the event that we're learning about today takes place in the home of a Pharisee who had invited Jesus to have a meal with him. Now Pharisees, we might we, if we know the New Testament a little bit, think of Pharisees as hypocrites, but that's not how they were viewed in the time of Jesus. They were popular, they were influential among ordinary Jews. They were viewed as the people, the Jews, who were most committed to keeping the Old Testament law. And the Pharisees had already had several run-ins with Jesus uh, In chapters 5 and 6 of Luke's gospel, Uh, when Jesus forgave that paralyzed man's sins, uh, he was accused by Pharisees as uh, a blasphemer because only God can forgive sins. Uh, As we mentioned already, they were grumbling about the fact that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day, a day of rest, Uh, Luke tells us in verse 11 of chapter 6 that the Pharisees were filled with rage and they were trying to figure out what they could do to Jesus. So the Pharisees already saw that Jesus was a problem that needed to be dealt with. Uh, So even though we don't know why this Pharisee invited Jesus to have a meal with him, we shouldn't be surprised that a subtle but significant disagreement takes place during the meal. And the source of that disagreement is introduced in the next couple of verses. Verses 37 and 38. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head And kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So soon after Jesus arrives in the Pharisee's house, something happened that would be very strange in Northern Virginia in 2023. Right? A woman, an uninvited guest, enters the Pharisee's home. Now, that's not the part that's so unusual, not in that culture. It would be not uncommon that an uninvited guest would kind of enter a more open home to observe what was going on during a formal dinner. Um, What was so surprising was who the woman was and what she did. Luke tells us, we've already heard it, that this woman was a sinner. Now, those of you with good theology are thinking to yourselves, "But, but we're all sinners, and you are correct, but we are not all the kind of sinners that this woman was. We don't know exactly what her type of sin was, what she was known for. Several scholars speculate that she was a prostitute, uh, but the type of sin that she was known for wasn't as important as the fact that she was known for her sin. She was a notorious sinner. Her sin was not some kind of private struggle that only her friends or family knew about. Um, She was a public sinner. Everybody knew about her sin, And so the the city had given her the label sinner. And what did the sinner do? She went into the home of a Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisees criticized Jesus simply for eating, having a meal with sinners. So you know the Pharisees were critical of the sinners themselves. But that doesn't deter the woman. When she found out where Jesus was, she went right there right into a place where she knew she could count on being looked down on in judgment. But she didn't care. She was on a mission. And the mission was to show her love to Jesus. She was carrying an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, we don't know how big this vial was, but in John's gospel, we we learned that a fairly small amount of this kind of perfume could be uh, worth a year's salary. 300 denarii, 300 days' wages, thousands of dollars today. So this woman on a mission brought some very expensive perfume with her. Now, at meals like this one, I'm not going to act it out, you just have to, to picture it, uh, people would lay on sort of a couch uh, with their head and hands near the table where they could get the food and eat, and their feet were extending away from the table. Uh, Aren't you glad I didn't act that out? So so the woman, she could not get close to the table, but she could get close to the feet of Jesus. And so she's either standing or kneeling by his feet and she begins to weep. And Luke doesn't tell us why, but she also begins to wet his feet with her tears. That's not a couple of tears, right? To wet feet. Um, And then this woman who is so shameless to enter the home of a Pharisee, despite her well-known reputation as a sinner, she does something particularly shameful in that culture. She lets her hair down in public. Again, different culture. Um, She does it so she can wipe Jesus's feet with her hair, cleaning them. She keeps kissing the feet of Jesus, and she doesn't seem to care at all what people think of her, She only wants to show her love to Jesus. Then she does something else very unusual. She opens that vial of perfume, and instead of putting it on the head of Jesus, which she couldn't reach, but that would have been much more normal, she pours the perfume on his feet. A year's wages poured onto Jesus' feet by this woman as she shamelessly expresses her love for Jesus. Jesus. And before we find out how Jesus responds to this woman, we find out how the Pharisee responds. We see that the Pharisee is judgmental both towards the woman and towards Jesus. And we see this in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Here we see that Simply by allowing the woman to touch and kiss and anoint his feet, Jesus opened himself up to criticism. The woman doesn't seem to care what other people think of her as she shamelessly shows her love to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't seem to care what others think as he allows her to express her love in this way. Everybody in town knew this woman's reputation, and Jesus had already been criticized for eating with sinners and tax collectors, so he had to know that the Pharisee was going to be critical of Jesus receiving this touching and display of love from this woman. But Jesus cared more about affirming this woman's love for him than he cared about avoiding criticism from a Pharisee. And so the Pharisee reasoned to himself, he was apparently just talking in his own mind, that Jesus must not be a prophet. Uh, So this man, the Pharisee, must have heard that Jesus might be a prophet, and so maybe his reason for inviting Jesus to dinner was to kind of check Jesus out for himself. Make sure you follow the logic of the Pharisee here. Uh, Prophets should know what kind of people are touching them. Jesus is allowing a sinner to touch him. Therefore, Jesus must not be a prophet. But the, the unspoken assumption behind the Pharisees' logic is, that, is this. No one who knows that a person is a sinner would allow that sinner to touch him. So the only possible conclusion in the Pharisees' mind was that Jesus must not know that this woman is a sinner. The good news for us is that there's another explanation. Jesus knows who we are. He knows what kind of people we are, but he doesn't run from us. He welcomes us. He calls us to repent of our sins, but he also welcomes us. So what was inconceivable to the Pharisee, what was too shameful for him to consider, is that Jesus could fully know sinners and welcome them, and that he's not afraid of any criticism that he might receive as a result so next jesus is going to use a little story and a question to explain what was taking place as this woman shamelessly expressed her love for him and here we see in the next section that jesus changes great sinners into great lovers through great forgiveness now as i read this notice the irony Uh, of what we're about to read. The Pharisee thought Jesus must not be a prophet because he didn't know that this woman was a sinner. Um, And now he's going to show that he actually even knows what this guy is thinking in his own mind. Verses 40 to 43. Uh, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. So in this very short story, two people had borrowed different sums of money. Uh, Neither was able to repay their loan. Does anybody have a denarius, by the way? No, okay, I'm not looking to borrow one that I can't pay back, that wasn't... No, so you might need to know how much these amounts of money are are worth. So a 500 denarii, 500 days wages would be about 20 months of a, a working person's wages in that time period. 20 months, so you can understand why that would be a significant amount to be forgiven. The other person owed 50 denarii, so about two months wages... Uh, Still a large amount, even though not nearly as much as the first debtor. And then the moneylender does something very unusual. He simply forgives the debts of both borrowers. Now, don't overlook the fact that when the moneylender forgave these debts, it cost him something. He was paying their debts for them by not requiring them to pay it themselves. He lost that money. And since the the ultimate point that Jesus is making is about his forgiveness, it's important that we remember that Jesus doesn't simply pretend that our sin didn't happen when he forgives us. He paid the debt that was owed by sinners when he died on the cross in our place. That's the only way that he can offer forgiveness to people who are guilty of sins. And at the end of this little story, Jesus asks makes his point by asking the question. He asked Simon, we have a name for this Pharisee now, he asked Simon, which forgiven debtor will love the forgiving money lender more? And Simon, perhaps because he understands where this conversation is headed, uh, responds a little uh, unenthusiastically. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus tells him that he responded correctly um, and makes the point, those who are forgiven more Will love the one who forgave them more. But then Jesus applies the point of the story and of his question both to the woman and to Simon. Verses 44 to 47. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Of course he saw him, right? That's where this whole thing started. He, he saw exactly what the woman was doing, but he needs to look at her from a different perspective. Do you see this woman? But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, Jesus' point here is probably not that Simon failed to show the common courtesies that he was expected to show to a guest. The point is primarily about the woman and what she did. Her shameless display of love, her great love for Jesus, is an understandable, a logical response to the fact that her many sins had been forgiven. This woman loved much because she had been forgiven much. So we know now that she probably had encountered, she almost certainly had encountered Jesus before this day in the Pharisee's house. She must have heard him preaching. She must have heard his invitation to repent of her sins, to be forgiven of those sins, so she can be included in that kingdom that Jesus is going to rule over um, She believed and she repented, so she had been forgiven. And because she was very much aware, just like everybody in town was very much aware of how sinful she had been, she understood she had been forgiven a great debt, and she was therefore filled with great love for Jesus. Now, if you take a close look at verse 47, make sure that you understand Jesus' logic here. His logic is not... That the woman was forgiven because she showed love for Jesus. That's the opposite logic of the parable, right? The point is that her love for Jesus is evidence of the fact that she had already experienced Jesus's forgiveness. For this reason, because she loved much, Jesus says to Simon, her sins, which are many, had already been forgiven. But then Jesus does give a little subtle rebuke to Simon. Uh, Jesus had been contrasting the 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 woman's actions with the fact that Simon had given him no water, no kiss, no oil for anointing his head. So when he says, he who is forgiven little loves little, he seems to be suggesting that because Simon has shown no love to Jesus, he has not been forgiven at all. Now, it's not that Simon is not a sinner too, but Simon doesn't see himself as a sinner who needed to be forgiven. What we see is that Jesus changes great sinners into great lovers, people who love him much by forgiving their many sins. Jesus' point is not that if you want to feel more love for Jesus, go be a great sinner for a while and then repent, receive his great forgiveness. That is not the point please do not take that application, right? The reality is that we all have been more than sinful enough to need the kind of great forgiveness that leads to a great love for Jesus. So I did a a strange thing in preparing for this sermon. Maybe it's a strange thing. It's not something I normally do. Um, I spent time thinking back over the ways that I've sinned in the past, Um, so that's a fun Christmas, uh, Christmas tradition to start, right? So Now, I am not nearly the jerk that I was when I was younger and before I was a believer. Just for one example, I was the guy who would ask other people what their SET score was, hoping they would ask me what mine was so I could tell them I got a higher score. So no, most of you would not have liked me um, before I became a Christian. Um, so, But if I only think about the, the good things that God has produced in my life and forget how much He's forgiven me, I can fail to love Jesus the way that I should. So um, here, here's what I want to do for you this morning. Well, here was my conclusion as I reflected on my sin, and I'm sure I couldn't remember all of them. Um, I'm more convinced than ever that in places like Romans 5:8, where God's Word refers to those who have been saved as sinners, that that's accurate. Um, And I've never been more convinced that I have been forgiven much. So now in the next one or two minutes please promise me that you will not hear what I am not saying, okay? I am not about to try to talk you into thinking that you are someone worse than you really are or than you have been, but I do want to try and help you along towards having a greater love for Jesus by reflecting on the greatness of the forgiveness that you've received if you have repented and are a follower of Jesus. So I'm just going to share with you some of the questions. not going to dwell on them. I'm going to share just some of the questions that I asked myself um, as I was trying to remember my own sin in order to appreciate how much I've been forgiven. So how often have our obedient actions been motivated more by how we want others to think of us than by a desire to please and honor the Lord. How often have we privately entertained thoughts that were prideful, lustful, bitter, jealous, unfairly critical, or angry? How often have we taken pleasure in imagining ourselves doing sinful things that we say we would never actually do? How often have we made excuses not to share the gospel because we want to avoid any awkwardness that might result in our relationships? How often have we explained away anger as being hangry or lack of generosity as being frugal or otherwise justified what is really a lack of faith in God and in His promises or simply disobedience to His commands? Okay, I'm done with that. You can reflect on that later as the Lord uh, leads you. But my hope is that we would all love Jesus more by realizing the greatness of his forgiveness, because our sins, too, are many, even if they are not public like this woman's sins were. Those of us who have believed in Jesus and repented of our sins have experienced a great forgiveness that can change us from great sinners into great lovers of God. By the way, make sure you don't miss the fact that those who have sinned in extraordinary ways like this woman don't get a a lesser version of salvation. At least one thing they get is a greater capacity to love Jesus. The only people who get something less are those who won't acknowledge how much they've sinned. At best, they get salvation with a decreased capacity to love Jesus. At worst, Their desire to maintain their innocence will prevent them from being forgiven at all. So we've seen that one thing that makes Jesus's forgiveness great is that he forgives many sins, and he even forgives the kind of sins that could earn a public reputation for being a sinner. The final section of our passage shows us that Jesus's forgiveness is great not only because of what it pardons, but because of what it produces. We see this in the last three verses. 48 through 50, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now for some reason Jesus tells this woman whose sins had already been forgiven, he tells her a second time, your sins have been forgiven. Maybe it sounded too good to be true the first time and Jesus didn't mind saying it again. Now, it's helpful to know that the, the word translated forgive, it shows up many times in the New Testament. It doesn't always refer to forgiveness. It's used in a lot of ways, and it includes things like uh, leaving an object behind, uh, permitting someone to do something, so giving permission, or even it, it's used to refer to someone divorcing his wife. Um, the root meaning of the word that seems to, to give rise to all the specialized meanings is to release and this helps us to think correctly about forgiveness. It's release from a debt that we owe because of our sin. The debt is God's wrath, and those who have believed in Jesus no longer owe that debt because Jesus paid it. Forgiveness releases us from any further obligation to pay that debt. So the correct way of thinking about Jesus's forgiveness distinguishes it from some ideas that creep into our minds sometimes when we think about forgiveness. And so I think I have a slide that shows kind of three ways of thinking about forgiveness. Um, One way is to think of it in terms of tolerance. I'm sorry, acceptance. Uh, Acceptance says, it doesn't matter to me that you sinned. Tolerance says, it does matter to me that you sinned, but I won't punish you for it. But forgiveness, what Jesus offers us, would say something like this, it used to matter to me that you sinned, but it doesn't matter anymore. This is what Jesus' forgiveness is like. It sets us free from any further obligation to pay for our sins. Our sins may have lasting consequences, maybe in relationships, maybe even legal consequences, but those are not required by Jesus as partial payment for our sin debt. He paid our debt in full, and forgive our, forgave our sins completely. So the first thing Jesus says to the woman in these verses is your sins have been forgiven. Then he goes on to say your faith has saved you. Now, Faith is necessary for forgiveness. Don't lose that in the midst of this glorious display of Jesus' forgiveness to this woman. Jesus doesn't go around forgiving people regardless of whether or not they believe the, his message and repent of their sins he forgives those who believe. Forgiveness removes the debt that prevents sinners from being part of Jesus's kingdom. Salvation is what forgiven people will experience because they're included in that kingdom. They'll experience the removal of everyone and everything opposed to their experience of a perfect life in a perfect kingdom ruled by the perfect king, Jesus. And Forgiveness and salvation are present possessions, but they're experienced primarily in the future. But the final thing that Jesus says, and, and what I want you to notice, is that uh, the last thing that Jesus says to the woman shows us what Jesus' attitude is toward forgiven people in the present. He says to her, go in peace. What is Jesus' wish, his hope, his desire in the present For those he has forgiven, go in peace. Now, why do we need to hear this? Sometimes we can think that although Jesus releases us from paying our own debt for our sins, he still wants us to to suffer a bit because of our sins, maybe to discourage us from repeating those sins in the future. So maybe we think of Jesus like uh, the parents of a teenager who totaled the family car while they were driving recklessly. Um, so maybe the parent forgives the child, absorbs the cost of replacing the car, allows them to continue driving, but then they hang a picture of the totaled car on the refrigerator. <laughs> it's a reminder of what they had done. That, that might have good intentions. It might save the child's life. But it also causes this child, this forgiven child, to regularly experience regret and embarrassment and shame is that how jesus forgives jesus says go in peace he doesn't say to the woman what we might expect go and sin no more he doesn't say you're forgiven but i hope that that this will make you think about the consequences before you do this again he just says go in peace What Jesus wishes for repentant sinners to whom he has granted forgiveness is a full experience of life the way it was meant to be experienced. That's what the Hebrew word shalom is, that we get peace uh, in, in the, the New Testament refers to. Life with abundant provision, no external conflicts, no inner turmoil, health, joy. And that's what Jesus wishes for this woman and for everybody that he's forgiven it won't be experienced perfectly in this life but it is part of life in his kingdom when it comes in its fullness so if you feel like jesus is willing to offer you forgiveness but he wants you to be burdened by the memory of what you did so you can learn some kind of lesson remember what he says here go in peace Broken relationships are perhaps inevitable for a forgiven sinner, but they are not Jesus' wish for them. Guilt and shame might plague a a forgiven sinner, but those are not what Jesus wants. He's not pleased to see those He's forgiven suffering from their mistakes so they can learn from them. Repentant sinners are forgiven, and Jesus' wish for them, His desire for them, the way He thinks and feels about them, is that he wants them to experience the peace that belongs to those he has forgiven. If you feel shame because of your sin and you've repented, experienced Jesus' forgiveness, but you still feel shame, and you think maybe that shame is something that Jesus wants you to suffer for some reason, remember that he says, go in peace. He doesn't want you to carry around a burden of guilt or shame or regret, or broken relationships. So if those things weigh you down, know that they're not a reflection of how Jesus thinks and feels about you. He says, go in peace. And if you only carry them around because you think that's what He wants you to suffer a bit longer because of your sins, you can drop those things, leave them in 2023, and don't take them into 2024 with you. Your sins have been forgiven if you have repented and trusted Jesus. Your faith has saved you, and Jesus wants you to go in peace. So as we consider the way that Jesus interacted with this woman and this Pharisee nearly 2,000 years ago, I think there are a lot of lessons that we can draw, but uh, there are just a few that I think are most important to point out today. First of all, if Jesus welcomes repentant sinners, so should we. Now, there's kind of two main ways that the church grows. One, we see it here on display very regularly. Children born into believing families grow up in the church, and at some point along the way, they repent and trust Jesus for themselves, and they continue to stay involved in in the church. It should be one of the most normal things in the world. But also, one of the most normal things in the world should be that people with a sinful past who did not grow in church hear the gospel accept, repent of their sins accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness and get added to the church perhaps while still carrying around the reputation or other effects of the sins they've repented of and been forgiven of and so if Jesus is willing to embrace such a person a repentant sinner then we, also repentant sinners, need to prepare, be prepared to embrace them as well. A second thing we can take from this is that, that we should tr- give up the illusion of, that we are relatively sinless in exchange for receiving greater love for Jesus. And that's what I was trying to do uh, as I talked about my uh, mental exercise of re- remembering just how much I've been forgiven for. As I mentioned, if we try to maintain the, the belief that we don't need much in the way of forgiveness, at best, we, we are forgiven, but we have a very little love for Jesus. At worst, our desire to maintain our innocence may cause us to miss out on his forgiveness completely. So if you've been trying to hold on to this idea that, that you're worthy, that you're not in need of forgiveness, don't miss out on Jesus' forgiveness instead receive forgiveness and a great love for him acknowledge your sins then repent of them and then receive his forgiveness now if you're more like the woman in the story and you're not under any illusion at all uh, that you're not in need of forgiveness um, then look to her example as a reminder that you've not sinned too greatly to be offered and invited to receive Jesus's forgiveness. Finally, uh, embrace the truth that Jesus spoke to the woman for her sake and for ours. If you've trusted Jesus and repented of your sins, those sins have been forgiven completely. Your faith has saved you, so you can look to the future with great hope, and you can go in peace. Jesus has no desire, he takes no pleasure in you continuing to experience any negative effects of your sin. You can leave those things behind as you walk into the future in peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great forgiveness. Not just that you have a, a disposition to forgive, but that you paid a great price on the cross so that we can be forgiven. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would, would hear from you what it is that, that we need to do in response. Lord, if we need to receive your forgiveness for the first time, Lord, I pray that each person here who needs to do that, you would give them the grace to do that. And Lord, I pray for those who have been forgiven but continue to be burdened, thinking that perhaps you're looking at them with displeasure. I pray, Lord, in the the name of Jesus, that you would set them free to walk into the future free of shame and guilt, embracing your full and complete forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.